Welcome to Peak True Crime, a podcast telling of dark tales and dastardly deeds in Derbyshire and the Peak District. Tin Twistle, 2016. Growing up in Manchester, my weeks had three very set anchor points. There were scouts on a Thursday, tea, or dinner if you're from the south, and my grands on a Friday, and going to Old Trafford to watch United on a Saturday. Walking to the stadium, my dad and I had passed through Trafford Park. In the days when the Manchester Ship Canal fed container ships in and out of the docks at the Port of Manchester, it being a thriving industrial hub. Today, gleaming apartment blocks have taken the place of cranes. Major international broadcasters like the BBC have studios there, and the Imperial War Museum has its northern outpost just across the canal basin from the Lowry, a world-class arts and performance venue. Once a place that provided a livelihood and meaning to working-class families, the urban renewal and regeneration tells the story of another Manchester, one where wealth is driven by international creativity and leisure, prosperity and commerce, all on show for everyone to see. If you look to the east from the upper floors of any of the apartment blocks, or even from the viewing platform at the top of the Imperial War Museum, on a clear day you can see the peaks of Kinderscout, and Grinslow Knoll, to the Peak District and beyond. A little left of your line of sight, there's the Pennine Moors. Saddleworth Moor, at the most northern tip of the Peak District, is its most infamous area of moorland. It's a place so embedded in the history of the city, it requires no explanation at all. Six miles south of Saddleworth, Tintwistle, was the location of a horrific and perplexing discovery that had lead detectives from the wild and open countryside of the Peak District to the gleaming towers of Media City. Earlier this year, I was stood on the Woodhead Pass, or, as the less romantic might describe it, the A628. Running from east to west across the Pennines, it's one of the main two roads that join the Red and White Rose counties of Lancashire, Yorkshire. I was stood at the very northern tip of the Peak District, at the Dark Peak, less than a mile along the Woodhead Pass from Tintwistle. Behind me was Rosewood Reservoir. I couldn't quite see it through a thicket of beech and ash trees that dropped down steeply to a small meadow from the roadside, some more trees and down to the water's edge. Across the other side of the road was a heavy, grey, dry stone wall. There were ferns and rough shrubbery and grass. A gap of about a car length in the wall was set back from the pavement. What was once a tiny car park or lay-by is now just a pathway. Rocks lining the edges to narrow the route from the roadway to a pathway leading out into heather and heathland. There's more ferns there too. They were parched with the summer sun and in the distance a thick line of birch trees stretched up and over the hill. 
there was a weathered wooden farm gate, half open and just about hanging from its hinges. Up until a few years ago, the gate was always open, allowing cars to pull in and park up, for dog walkers and ramblers to access the bridleways that skirt the edge of the Pennine Way. The sky of the mid-afternoon was clear and blue, but one night in early October 2016, that oh-so-isolated spot was illuminated by fire. It was only a small fire, but one that burnt with a bluish hue, catching the attention of drivers as they drove along this section of the Woodhead Pass. Some drivers reported seeing the outline of a man stood or hunched beside the fire, silhouetted against the deep, dark night. Others remembered a car parked up, but nothing else. Most, most just remembered the fire. The city of Manchester is the home to the largest population of Chinese nationals in the entirety of the UK. The first meaningful wave of immigration settling in the city in the 50s, predominantly from Hong Kong. The old and abandoned cotton warehouses in the centre of the city provided home to what would become the second largest Chinatown in the UK and by the late 70s, educational, cultural and commercial spaces became established to support what would soon be one of the most thriving communities in the city. By the late 90s, young people and professionals from mainland China had begun arriving in Manchester and across the UK. To study, to work, to live a life free from the personal and political containments of Chinese society. One such student, was Yang Lu, an only child from Beijing. With the financial support of his parents, at the turn of the millennium, he began a degree in engineering at the University of Leeds. Warm and full of life, while studying, he met a fellow Chinese student, Nan Wang. After graduation, the pair married and moved the 45 miles west from Leeds to Manchester. Despite their shared background, strangers who became friends and then lovers in a strange country, after a few years of marriage, the pair grew apart. And by 2016, Yang had been living in his own elegant, high-rise apartment at Media City, part of the regeneration of the old port of Manchester at Salford Quays. Yang, by all accounts, was enjoying a successful life. He owned his own home outright, drove a top-of-the-range Mercedes and enjoyed the famously expensive hobby of high-stakes gambling. He had the watches and wardrobe to match his lifestyle, which was funded by a hugely successful career as a solo investor. A regular face at the late-night casinos across the city, Yang was well-known and well-liked. He won with as much grace as he lost, 
meaning he was welcome at some of the most exclusive tables in the city. He wore his success lightly, described by friends as kind and gentle. Anyone who's ever visited a casino will know that they attract an eclectic clientele. In lots of ways, they're a truly democratic space, with the only bar to entry being the resources to cover your bets. Through what means those resources are acquired is of very little interest to the proprietors of the casinos, as they hold two central tenants dear. Number one, the house always wins. And number two, the house always wins. Which individuals provide these losses that allow the house to always win is of little interest to the aforementioned proprietors. And the distribution of losses isn't evenly distributed among their patrons. Therefore, as Yang generally won more than he lost, there'd be a fellow player whose fortunes were the polar opposite. Call them marks or mugs, addicts or the desperate. Let me introduce you to Ming Jiang. A fellow Beijing emigre, Ming was eight years young senior, and though the pair were friends, they were different in almost every way. Losing far more than he won, where Yang was successful and characterised by his temperate nature, Ming had an employment history littered with dismissal after dismissal. Alternating between frauds against his employer to violent outbursts against colleagues, he flitted from job to job. Banned from all but a few casinos in the city, he represented everything that Yang wasn't. Because of his abject failure, both in work and in his casino, Ming carried debts which ran into six figures and lived in a small rented flat in the east of the city, as far away geographically and socially from the gleaming towers of Media City as you could possibly get. The two spent time together outside of the casinos and on October the 5th, 2016, Yang took a tram to visit Ming's home. CCTV footage shows him at an interchange in the centre of the city and then again at the Etihad campus station, alighting before meeting another man and making a 20-minute walk to Ming's flat on Falconwood Way. This is the last known sighting of Yang. His parents had received messages back in China. He'd sell all his investments and even put his apartment on the market. Nobody set sight on him though. Nobody at all. It was just after lunch on the 10th of October that a small group of walkers discovered the blackened remains of what looked like a suitcase. Taking a closer look within the blistered and solidified puddle of the burnt plastics was the charred human remains, a torso, here in the lay-by 
on the Woodhead Pass. In the days that followed, Assistant Chief Constable Bill McWilliams and the Lead Investigator Detective Chief Inspector Terry Crompton explained to the media how the torso of an unidentified person had been discovered in a secluded lay-by on the Woodhead Pass between Tin Twistle and Flount Roundabout. The remains, without a head, legs or arms, were in such a state of mutilation that the sex of the individual couldn't be ascertained, but DNA had been recovered. Checks against the National DNA Database hadn't delivered a match, and in the weeks that followed, the media, social and established, speculated wildly. Was it gang-related? Had a people smuggling operation run through the nearby Manchester airport claimed an innocent victim? A possible high-profile missing person was suggested. RAF gunner Corey McGee. Just two weeks earlier, Corey had gone missing after a night out in the Suffolk town of Bury St Edmunds. To this day, he's neither been seen nor his body discovered, but after a long police investigation, the inquest concluded that Corrie, while drunk, had climbed into a commercial waste bin and fallen asleep. In the early hours of the following morning, the bin was emptied into a refuse collection lorry and transported to the local landfill. Corrie, his inquest claimed, died of compression asphyxia in association with multiple injuries. Back in Derbyshire, over the course of two or three days, a fingertip search of the site led forensic investigators to the conclusion that the siding wasn't the place that the individual had died, rather that it was where the body had been dumped. Some distinctive tyre marks were found in close proximity to the site of the fire too, the hypothesis being that the body had been transported in the boot or back of a car. Details of the suitcase were revealed to the public, an image released of a black, soft-case Samsonite. The working hypothesis was that the remains had been placed within it prior to being left on the road, with petrol then poured over it and set alight. Behind the scenes, with no leads or the identity of the victim known, police focused on the vehicles that had been in the area prior to the discovery. Automatic Number Plate Recognition, or ANPR, gave detectives a list of all vehicles that had travelled along this specific stretch of the Woodhead Pass between 9.30pm and midnight on Sunday the 9th of October. In total, this delivered around a 1,000 hits, with each registration being checked against witnesses who'd already come forward and various internal and external databases. This thorough and time-consuming piece of work threw up one specific car that caught the investigator's attention. A silver Mercedes. It was the only vehicle that had travelled the Woodhead Pass in both directions, driving out of and back into Tintwistle in less than an hour. Tracing the registered owner to an apartment in Media City in Manchester, local police visited the property without success. As a priority, 
wheels were put in motion for a marker to be put against the Mercedes registration number, indicating that the driver was wanted in connection to a murder of an unidentified individual. In the days prior to the discovery of the car and ANPR, the vehicle was involved in a routine stop by uniformed police in Manchester. Despite the car being registered to Yang Lu, the driver, who identified himself as Ming, claimed he belonged to a Mr J Wong, and as neither the mysterious Mr Wong or Ming had valid insurance to drive it, the silver Mercedes was impounded. It then came as something of a surprise to the Derbyshire detectives to discover, when they investigated the owner of the vehicle, whose movements on the night of the 9th of October appeared suspicious, that the car was sat in a police yard, 15 miles away in Manchester. Liaising with colleagues in Greater Manchester Police, the team led by DCI Terry Crompton undertook preliminary forensic investigations on the car. A tiny spot of blood, no bigger than a tenpence piece, was discovered on the back seat and found to match the torso found in the suitcase. The tyres of the Mercedes also matched the distinctive marks next to the fire site in the lay-by. A hypothesis was emerging, that the victim of the murder had been transported post-mortem in the car before being dumped and set alight. Detectives were still no closer to identifying who it was though. Checks on Yang's financial activity had shown him making cash withdrawals over the past couple of weeks and card transactions had been made, including the purchase of casino chips up to the value of £150,000. On the night before the discovery of the body, Yang's debit card had been used just before 8pm at a petrol station on the outskirts of Manchester. It was a relatively small purchase, but a significant purchase. Investigated ascertained that a fuel can plus petrol was bought, the same fuel type identified as the accelerant in the fire. Further CCTV work on the petrol station revealed a male in a black baseball cap with a distinctive logo. Possibly ethnically Chinese, he had used the card. The same man was also caught by ATM cameras, withdrawing cash from Yang's account. With the vehicle, seemingly responsible for transporting the torso in the suitcase in the hands of the police, Derbyshire detectives were convinced that the key to identifying the anonymous victim lay in Manchester. The search for Yang was intensified. Of interest too was the uninsured driver from whom the silver Mercedes was confiscated. At the time, he claimed his name was Ming Jiang. Could Ming be the victim, with Yang Lu assuming his identity to avoid detection? Alerts were placed on all of Yang's accounts. Both names circulated to police forces across the country, as well as ports and airports. It wouldn't be until October the 19th that these measures bore fruit, with police notified that a card had just been used at the 235 Casino in Manchester. Before long, officers dispatched the location had taken a Chinese national into custody. 
In his possession was a passport in the name of Yang Lu, a mobile phone registered to Yang, and also a wallet containing the identification in the name Ming Jiang. Kept in custody overnight, the man was interviewed by detectives from Derbyshire Constabulary the following day. The individual was open with detectives and willing to speak. Identifying himself as Ming, a fact that was confirmed by secondary sources, he waived his right to give a no-comment interview, instead providing full and frank answers to the police questions. His cooperation, though, was not for the purpose of helping the investigation, rather to hinder it. To paint a picture of Yang so distant from reality that inevitably the finger of suspicion would soon fall on Ming. What follows was the picture of Lang Yu, his life, and ultimately his death, that Ming provided to the police and maintained throughout his subsequent trial. Despite no evidence to support it, Ming claimed that Yang was gay and that the pair were in a relationship, hence the fact he was driving his car and in possession of his passport. He admitted to not having seen Yang for a few days, but he wasn't concerned, as the pair were committed to each other and planning to enter into a civil partnership. Ming then sought to cast his friend's life as one fraught with danger. Unsubstantiated, he claimed that Yang was a male escort and moved in villainous circles, owing huge gambling debts to a Malaysian gambling cartel. Unfortunately, for Ming, the police investigation had been advancing at pace, and as a result, a rather different picture emerged. With additional time granted for retaining Ming in custody, a forensic search was taken of his flat. One of the transactions that had been made using Yang's bank card was at B&Q for the purchase of decorating equipment. Lo and behold, the bathroom of Ming's flat had recently and hastily been repainted, and alongside traces of DNA matching the victim being found in the lounge and kitchen, blood spatter was found in, around and above the bath, in such quantities that suggested that something more than a shaving incident had occurred. Time was also taken looking into Ming's financial situation, and the picture that emerged wasn't pretty. A number of failed business ventures, including a noodle bar in Bolton, were compounded by significant gambling debts. These would see Ming owing over a quarter of a million pounds. Company's house still today has a record of the business he set up in December prior to Yang's murder. Not one to suffer from a lack of confidence, he named the company, somewhat egotistically, Ming Dynasties Limited. After a year, the company was wound up. The revenue generated too small for accounts to need publishing, so it's safe to say it didn't represent business success. 
it seems he saw the answer to his problems as being brutal murder and identity fraud, with Yang the victim, whose mutilated torso was found smouldering by the roadside not three weeks earlier. Ming was brought before Chesterfield Magistrates Court the following day. A criminal prosecution for the murder of Yang set for a hearing at Nottingham Crown Court. In the six months from charges being laid and the trial which began in April 2017, the police and prosecution developed a clear idea of what occurred between the 4th and 19th of October the previous year. From the CCTV footage of Yang alighting from a tram a mile from Ming's flat to Ming's arrest at the 2365 casino. In the months before the murder of Yang, Ming's life began spiralling out of control. He was drowning in debt and his addiction to the high-risk, low-reward life of a heavy gambler was taking its toll. His salary, working for the German airline Lufthansa, provided for a lifestyle he was unwilling to accept, and having befriended Yang, he saw an easy yet barbaric solution. He'd murder Yang, take over his identity, and steal whatever financial assets from the dead man that he could. Luring Lang to his flat, the court heard from the prosecution barrister Peter Wright QC that Ming had probably murdered Yang in the lounge with blood found on the sofa and coffee table, storing the body at his home for four days before the journey to the Woodhead Pass on the evening of the 9th of October. The delay was in part to allow time for him to put his identity theft into place as well as withdrawing cash and purchasing casino chips, Ming on several occasions was caught on CCTV visiting Yang's apartment. First appraising and selling items of value, he shipped seven packages to an address in Shanghai during this time. Audaciously, Ming also attempted to sell Yang's flat. The estate agent, who was approached to market the property, remembered a nervous and awkward Ming, who is led to believe was Yang, wanting a quick sale and knocking 25% off the suggested asking price to secure it. Brazenly, Ming was driving around the city in Yang's silver Mercedes, using his money to visit casinos, travelling to Nottingham, to where he was unknown, in order to make large purchases of casino chips with which he gambled, all the while draining whatever cash and credit was available to him. In order to gain access to Yang's bank account, Ming phoned the relevant banks, and impersonating Yang, claimed to have lost passwords and PIN numbers, with replacements sent to the apartment at Media City, which he collected and then used. Now, with entire control of Yang's identity, Ming had still the issue of the dead body to contend with. After a few days, the intact remains of a human being begin to break down. Internal organs start to decompose. Bloating begins and fluids ooze from the flesh. In order to have the time to conclude the sale of the apartment, it was vital that the murder of Yang not be discovered, or at least 
if the body found, it not be identified. It was at this stage that, using what pathologists believed were a set of sharp kitchen knives, Ming decapitated and mutilated Yang's body, removing his head, arms and legs in order to make ascertaining the identity of the victim as difficult as possible. What he did with the limbs and head is unknown, but Yang placed the torso in a black Samsonite suitcase in readiness to dispose of it. It's highly likely Ming chose the car park off the A638, the Woodhead Pass, during his journey to the casino in Nottingham some days earlier. The route between the two cities is via the Woodhead Pass, and Ming would have passed this very spot. After loading the suitcases into the boot of the Mercedes, sometime after seven on the evening of the 9th of October, Ming drove from his flat and travelled east, out through the suburbs of Greater Manchester. As rush hour was behind him, the roads were relatively quiet. The sky was clear, and as he moved further out of the city, this cloudless, windless night, he'd have passed through the suburbs of Denton and Hyde. Next on his route was the housing estate that is etched in the folklore of Manchester. Hattersley, the home of Myra Hindley and Ian Brady. Half a century earlier, the pair would have made the same journey on the same roads. While Ming continued east onto the Woodhead Pass, Hindley and Brady would have headed just a few miles further north, to the moor at Saddleworth, a place so synonymous with the crimes the pair committed its name will be forever stained with association. Stopping only to buy accelerant with which to set alight and desecrate Yang's body, Ming carefully parked what he thought was just out of shot of the petrol station's CCTV cameras. However, the footage obtained by the investigators catches the silver Mercedes parked on the edge of the station forecourt, Ming filling the can at the pump. Any real attempt at anonymity was thwarted, however, by the use of Yang's card as payment, an in-store video capturing him wearing the PokerStars baseball cap seen on CCTV images of him withdrawing cash from Yang's accounts on a daily basis. On each occasion, he assumed it would hide his identity, but in fact, he created a thread of continuity between each transaction. The rationale behind a remote lay-by was solid. Built originally to transport salt from the plains of Cheshire to Yorkshire, the Woodhead Pass linked the major cities of the north from east to west. Like the M8 between Glasgow and Edinburgh, alongside commuters and day-trippers, the road was now a route for a trade in white powder of an altogether more illicit nature, and as such, the discovery of a torch body would more likely be associated with organised crime. The point wasn't that Yang's body wouldn't be found, but that it wouldn't be identified. With all distinguishing body parts removed, if it was not for the work of ANPR, it's unlikely that the police investigation would have struggled to progress beyond a gang killing or criminal revenge attack. Ming pulled into the lay-by overlooking Rosewood Reservoir, 
A bridleway heading up to the crags of Ladlow Rocks starts here, but Ming destination was this very spot. Driving in and taking an immediate turn to the right, the Mercedes reversed so the back bumper was just metres from the shrubs that lined the perimeter of the car park. Cutting off the engine, he got out and opened the boot, lifting the suitcase out onto the shale and shrub-infested ground below. Ming doused the case in petrol before setting it alight. Offering some resistance to the fire, the case battled to repel the heat of the flames, but the sheer power of its presence won through, and the case and body were eventually consumed. Returning to his flat in East Manchester, by 1am Ming had one remaining task which he hoped would further add to the ambiguity as to the body that would surely be discovered in the following days. He messaged Yang's parents in Beijing. Brief to the point of briskness, they received a two-word text from the phone of their only son. I'm okay. Yang wasn't okay though. He was dead. He'd been murdered and butchered to pieces, his torso torched and abandoned, his arms, legs and head dumped only Ming knows where, never to be recovered. Throughout the four weeks of the trial, Ming pleaded his innocence. In the direction of Yang, inconsistent and unsubstantiated claims were made regarding gambling debts, male prostitution, as well as the mysterious John Wong, who, it was alternately alleged, was the actual owner of the silver Mercedes, a client of Yang, as well as a shady and violent loan shark for a Malaysian criminal gang. Evidence also came to light that Ming had been spreading the rumour that Yang had run into financial difficulties and fled. With a text from Ming to a casino croupier presented at court in which Ming described Yang as a cheating bastard who had been disappeared. In summing up, the prosecuting barrister, James Wright QC, characterised Ming as a cold, ruthless and calculating killer. A murderer for gain, and the tissue of lies, a sickening smokescreen. The jury took just a little over four hours to find Ming guilty of the murder of Yang, with sentencing set for the following day. Ming would refuse to attend court for his sentencing, and in his absence, Judge John Potter passed a minimum term of 33 years and explained that the process of recovering what remained of Yang's assets would begin immediately. Designed as a means of recovering criminal assets, the Proceeds of Crime Act is a piece of UK legislation which is used to claw back as much of the financial gain a criminal has accrued through their illegality. Unlike, say, the Criminal Assets Bureau in Ireland, the Proceeds of Crime Act is not a proactive investigation but it's a process that is set in train post-conviction. In common with his attitude to his criminal trial, 
Ming refused to engage in any meaningful way with the process. Held this time in Minchell Street Crown Court in Manchester, in the early September of 2017, Ming again refused to come out of his cell for the hearing. His defence barrister, Guy Mathewson QC, explained to the court that Ming completely refused to engage in the process, even refusing to come out to speak to his own legal team from prison, and that his client wanted no further part in it. Prosecuting Rob Hall QC confirmed that the defence had therefore submitted nothing in response to the Crown statement. Of the hundreds of thousands of pounds that Ming had drained from Yang's accounts and investments, Judge John Potter was only able to make an order for Ming to pay £48,188, as so much had already been gambled away. The judge ordered for arrangements to be made within three months, all risk another 12 months being added to the sentence. As Ming had been jailed for life and can't be considered for parole for 33 years, Potter said it was entirely possible that he will never be released and will die behind bars. Yang was the only son of Li Ping Lu and Ning Shang Wang. With the support of his devoted parents, he'd moved to the UK, first to study and then to build a new life for himself. His life was brought to a premature end by a combination of craven greed and brutal violence at the hands of a man he thought his friend. Unable to attend the trial, a statement from his parents described the pain they were suffering as beyond words. Of Yang, they said, Our son was warm and full of life. He was also kind. Since his birth, he's always had a smile on his face. He was well loved. When our son is mentioned, we cry with tears running down our faces. Our physical and mental suffering can never be repaired. Beyond the charred remains discovered on the 10th of October 2016, in a lay-by between the foothills of the Dark Peak and the edges of the Pennine Moors, the further remains of Yang have never been discovered. I'm stood here on the Woodhead Pass. Um, I've got Rosewood Reservoir behind me and just in front of me is the tiny little lay-by car park where some of Yang's remains were discovered. Um, and I've been here a couple of times before and in the past I've been here during the day. But I'm here at night now and two things stand out really one 
how much quieter the road is. During the day there's traffic going down here quite constantly. There's delivery lorries, caravanners, cars. It's quite, it's a relatively busy road. But now it's near deserted. There's the odd cottage or lights in the distance of places, but it's just so dark. That's the second thing, it's just so dark. There are no lights on the road at all, and it really emphasises the fact that this isn't the kind of place you'd just stumble upon. It's a place that you'd have to know about. And I think, as I mentioned in the case before, I do wonder whether on his trips to and from Manchester to Nottingham, whether this was a place Ming spotted. I mentioned before how Yang's body, apart from the remains that were found here, had never been discovered. And over the weekend when I was kind of putting the finishing touches to this script, uh, a tweet came through from Greater Manchester Police about the, the new search that's underway on Saddleworth Moor, which is only six miles, seven miles north of here. Um, they've been tipped off by an author that the remains of Keith Bennett, the 12 year old who was murdered by Myra Hindley and, and Ian Brady, whose body has still never been discovered. And when I thought about it, I thought, well, first was a, a genuine relief. You know, I grew up in a place where their shadow was cast long. Um, but really a relief for the family. I remember pretty regularly on our local TV news, Keith's mother Winnie would be there, pleading for either Brady or Hindley to reveal where his body was. And it wasn't too long ago she died and now Depending on how successful this new investigation is, maybe she'll finally be able to have a sun laid rest next to her. But also, in the case of Yang, this part of his body's not been discovered. And police believe that somewhere among all these blankets of cotton moss and heather, there's another charred suitcase um, and its contents are just as grisly as, as its pair that was found here. If you've not been here, it might seem 
unfathomable that it's not been discovered yet but as unimaginable as the crimes of Hindley and Brady almost half a century earlier have taught us the Moors really keep their secrets close